Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Bosco. I'm the Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs at the NYU Langone Department of Orthopedic Surgery. I am the President of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And you're listening to Interview with a Surgeon with the Surgeon Agent. On this episode of Interview with the Surgeon, we welcome Dr. Joe Bosco, Professor and Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at NYU Langen Health. He specializes in sports medicine, total knee replacement, shoulder and elbow surgery. His research interests include healthcare policy and quality, and he has lectured and published extensively on these topics. Dr. Bosco was elected as the AAOS 2020-2021 President and has been a longtime active member of the AAOS and was elected to the Academy's Board of Directors as a member at large in 2013. He began his Academy of Service as a member of the Sports Medicine Evaluation Committee and was a member of the 2005 Leadership Fellow Program. He previously chaired the Annual Meeting Committee and served as the President of the Board of Orthopedic Learning Center. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining Interview with the Surgeon. Today, we welcome Dr. Joe Bosco, Vice Chair of Orthopedic Surgery at NYU and the current 2020 American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons President. Doc, how are we doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So let's just jump right into it. What were your goals and aspirations during your residency? And how did those change during your fellowship? You know, that's a great question. And I'm sure the residents will tell you, you know, when you, when you show up for work as an intern, your goal and aspiration is to make it to the next day. You know, it's day by day by day, trying to keep your head above water. And then many times like me, I, I did my uh, medical school at University of Vermont. I went to UN, UNC, University of North Carolina, went there to visit one weekend. And then eight months later, I'm there showing up for my internship. Didn't know anyone. So it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I had never been there before. Didn't, like I said, didn't know anyone. And, and my goals were just to make it to the next day as an intern. And then as you, you know, keep your head above water, you see that basically you're a sponge and, and, and I don't think much has changed. You want to learn as much as you can. You have five years and that seems like a long time, but there's a, a, a ton of stuff you got to learn. You're a sponge. You're, you're developing your craft for the first time in your life after many, many years of school, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school. Now you're finally doing something. Forget about taking calculus and organic chemistry. You're doing something that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. So, you know, after the first couple of years, then you want to, your goal is to learn as much as you can, sort of figure out which direction you want to head, so especially wise, and, and, and learn how to be a surgeon and learn how to be a good physician. And, and I, I believe that's really that's really the crux of it. And then as you get towards the end, then your goal is, okay, you know, now I decide I want to be a sports specialist. How do I get a sports fellowship? And then, because we're all good at that. We're all goal oriented. We've got to go from A to B to C. And many of us have done that literally. So after, you know, you're in college, you're in high school, you want to get into a good college. You're in college, you want to get into a good medical school. You're in medical school, you want to get into a good residency. You're in a residency, guess what? And while you're like, I got into getting get a great fellowship. So it's very easy for us to do that because we're very goal oriented. And so, you know, you decide what fellowship you want. And then from there, you decide, you know, okay, where do I want to practice? What geographic location? There's a lot of people that are bound geographically. Some people are, don't care where they live, don't have any, any things holding them back. They just want to find the best job possible. And what the best job is, is, is very different for different people. You know, some people have to, make a certain amount of money because they're, they're saddled with debt. Other people really don't care about that. They're looking for academics. So it's a, there's a, as you know, there's a whole gamut, but it's, it's certainly a continuum. That's for sure. So taking us through your fellowship, what was your mentality heading into your first job search and how that perspective changed in the beginning years of your career? 
Well, again, you know, what's interesting too is that for, for, for residents and medical students, all you know is academic practice. You know, sometimes you may have some, uh, some, a, some, some access to, to private practice folks, but in reality, most of the folks you know is academic, so that's all you think. And when, you, when, when we interview resident candidates, all of them say, I wanna be an academic, so such and such, such, you know, and reinvent the wheel and reinvent fire. But then after, after a couple of years, a lot of folks realize, you know, there's private practice and private practitioners provide excellent, high value care for patients, but, but they're in business for themselves. And that's very attractive for a lot of people. So again, you know, during, during your fellowship, you just, you just want to learn as much as you can about your subspecialty, do some research, and then more importantly, position yourself for your first job, whether it be an academic, so you have to do a lot of research, or in private practice, you, you, know, you wanna be able to figure out geographically where you wanna be. Throughout your career, did you ever consider going to private practice or are you academic focused all the way? No, what was interesting is I had an um, interesting first part because I, I, I'm from New York, upstate New York, you know, which is not New York City, north of Albany. And then I went to college up there and I went to University of Vermont for medical school. People said, why'd you choose that? Well, because it's the only medical school I got into. So it was a pretty easy choice for me. And so, but if you were from New York and you went to University of Vermont, you had to you had to sign up for for a program that was patterned after physician health service, which meant that after you completed your residency and fellowship, you had to go practice in a physician shortage area in New York State for three years. And that was county by county, and it could be in your specialty. So whatever specialty you did, there were certain counties in New York State that were, that were physician shortage areas. So you have to, let's just take it back a second, all right? I was, when I signed up for that, I was 21 right out of the frat house, lacrosse field. I'm like, I got into one school, University of Vermont. I'm like, great, I'm gonna get a ski pass, I'm gonna ski, I'm gonna have a good time. I don't care about, you know, cause that is four years of medical school, five years of residency, one year of fellowship. That's 10 years down the road. That's a, you know, that's an eternity, a lifetime. So that, guess what? Then everything happened. And then when it came time to it, I was doing my fellowship at, at, at University of Arizona, loved it there, got offered a job, uh, was talking to him about staying out there. When I got a call from New York State, guess what? They hadn't forgotten about a deal I made 10 years ago. So I had to go back to New York State for three years to practice in a physician shortage area by my specialty, by county. So it just happened for me. I was fortunate that, that Bronx County, which is a part of New York City, uh, where Montefiore and Albert Einstein College of Medicine is, they, they're a physician shortage area. They were at that time, because there's a lot of folks that live in the Bronx, not a lot of orthopedic surgeons. So I got an academic job there, working at uh, Montefiore Medical Center and Albert Einstein, which was great for me. And, and the interesting part of the story is I'll tell you, I grew up in Albany where the, where the, uh, the state government is, right? That's the capital of New York, for those of you who don't know. And so when I get the call from New York State, finally they get a hold of me and uh, I was discussing this with the woman on the phone and maybe I was a little incredulous that they would remember I made a deal with them. And and I was like, do I really have to come back to New York? I mean, I've been away for 10 years. I mean, I have this job in Tucson. And the other woman on the other phone go, said to me, is this Joe, Joey Bosco, Tina Bosco's son? Because my I grew up there as my mom's bridge partner and a woman I had known all my life and I went to high school with her kids. So she basically chastised me, like yelled at me like I was six years old again and basically shamed me like, I'm sorry, Mrs. Visker, I'll go back to New York. I, I don't know what I was thinking of. You know, I did make a deal. I go, 
and she was like, I could see her pointing her finger at me on the other end of the phone. So it was, that was a pretty funny story. So I went back to Montefiore, spent four years there and I spent three years and then went back to North Carolina for two years, was in private practice with a great group. It was called Triangle Orthopedics back then. Now it's called Emerge Ortho. That's a small group of about 250 people. When I was down there, it was 10 guys, 10 surgeons, and they just, they just bought a physician-owned hospital, just bought their own hospital at their surgery center. I learned a lot from those guys. They were excellent surgeons, excellent clinicians, great business people. They were far ahead of their time. And you know, if I had stayed down there, instead of coming back to New York in 1998, I'd be retired by now, but that's okay. I'm happy where I am right now. What would you say were some of the keys to your success that shaped your early career as you climbed the top of your industry? Well, you know, I, I think I was fortunate to be around mentors that, that saw in me more than I saw in myself, whether it was Dr. Wilson, who was my residence, uh, who was uh, a chair of the Department of the University of North Carolina, or Dr. Volz or Dr. Benjamin, were my fellowship directors, or Dr. Zuckerman, who, who was chair at, uh, at, at NYU and brought me on in, uh, uh, in uh, 1997 after an uh, interview in, in New Orleans at their annual convention. And I'd been on call two nights before, up all night, and I showed up the next day and was uh, probably out on Bourbon Street a little longer than I should have been. So seven o'clock the next day, I really hadn't slept in two days. And Dr. Zuckerman doesn't drink coffee. So I, I drank like a whole gallon of coffee he said, you want to come back to New York? I have a job. And I said, sure. He goes, you want to hear about the job? I go, no, I'll just come back and whatever. And so he told me about the job and, you know, there was no negotiation, which is stupid. But, but I was fortunate to be with people who were high-functioning, caring people that sort of looked out to me, gave me the opportunities, and I, I grew into them. So I was, I, was, I was very fortunate in that. So the keys were that I, I was lucky enough to work with good people. I saw opportunities, and I, and I went for them. What advice do you have for graduating residents and fellows entering the professional job market for the first time? Yeah, so, you know, another great question. So, obviously, you know, for me, I would tell you, again, you know, when I interview, because I interview residents candidates, and, and you'll get a kid from New York, or maybe a kid from L.A. if you're in L.A., he'll come a kid from New York, and he'll be highly qualified. Say, well, I want to stay in New York because my family's here. I want to stay in New York because my girlfriend or boyfriend is here. And I'm thinking... You know, I went to University of North Carolina. I didn't know anyone down there. It was the best move of my life. I took a chance, right? I broadened my horizon. I, I went to a place where I'd never been and, uh, and I didn't know anyone and I didn't have any family members down there. I didn't have any significant other. And it was the best move I made in my life. You know, it was, I took a little bit of risk. So, so I would say broaden your horizons, take risks. Don't be afraid to fail. Obviously, those are, those are trite, trite recommendations, but it really does hold true. You know, and, and uh, I did not follow the normal route. You know, I had a little peripatetic circuitous route initially, but I always had my eye on, on goals, but I wasn't afraid to change the goals a little bit as opportunities came up. Now, seeing that you're the 2020 AOS president and that most of these conferences have gone virtual or online, what advice do you have for the graduating class when regarding their networking and outreach process? Well, another uh, great question. So obviously nowadays everything is networking via social media, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's all these other platforms. And, you know, you really can't be a Luddite when it comes to this stuff. You, you've got to get out there and put yourself out there, right? You have to establish a social media platform. <clears throat> it has to be well curated, obviously. You don't want any pictures of you, you know, sipping Mai Tais with scanning clad people. That, that doesn't help. 
your professional outlook. So it's got to be curated. You have to put time and effort into it. It's got to be purposeful. So, so again, you know, and, and now in the time of COVID, there's really been, uh, you know, hiring. There's plenty of jobs out there, but just everyone's sort of in a freeze. And I'll give you an example. Uh, this year at, uh, at NYU, we have a 160-person department. We hired five, five new folks this year, which is a decent amount for us. And three of them signed a contract with us. And two of them were in negotiating. And what they weren't difficult negotiations. They were just negotiating. And then we had a hiring freeze. So the dean said, here's the deal. The people you already signed a contract, you know, we have to honor the contract. But the two other people you can't hire. So Dr. Zucker and I took a deep breath. But we said, okay, well, that's really not fair. So because the two of the people that were negotiating were negotiating in good faith. But we didn't want to negotiate five contracts at once. So we went to the three people we signed up and said, you know, look, we need you to take a little bit of pay cut so we can hire these other people. It's only temporary. And, and you know what? <clears throat> they agreed to do it, mostly because none of their peers had jobs anyway. So it wasn't like there was a better offer out there. And we were very open about it. So again, you know, my advice is be patient. Uh, don't, don't hem yourself in geographically. You know, there's plenty of great places in this country to live. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and you take a little bit of a risk, you know, go, go someplace you don't never been to before, you know, because nothing's ever permanent, but you know, you may be surprised when you go somewhere and you may like it. Working with residents and fellows, what are some of the mistakes you see young surgeons making when entering the professional market? Well, look at, I mean, medicine is a business. I mean, it's a great profession and we, we have a higher calling. We take care of patients and that's our number one job. And you know, the good of the patient really, what's good for patients really informs all the decisions we make. But having said that, you join a practice, as we see more and more consolidation in the healthcare industry, practices are consolidating and then run more like businesses too. You know, when I came out, you'd have a five person practice, maybe a three person practice, and the managing director of the practice would be an orthopedic surgeon. And when you joined, you were fully expected to be an equal partner in a couple of years, right? There wasn't like a law firm where, you know, there were associates and there was a pyramid. This was, but basically you, you joined, you were part of the club, you did the right thing and you were made partner, right? But nowadays it's a lot different. There's been a lot of corporate takeover of medicine. You see it in dermatology now where, where practice, big practices, you know, the Rothman group, I'll just use them as an example. It's a great practice, high, you know, high quality guys, men and women, doing great research, taking care of great patients, but it's run by a non-physician, right? There are physicians that are clinicians that help run it, but you know, it's a, it, you know, not everyone is expected to make partner, right? So you have to understand these things and look at it as a business. And again, you know, you may have a, a bright person uh, that top of his or her class and signing a contract for $500,000 a year, 400, 600, name of price, but then when, when they go to hire a lawyer to review their contract, say, you know, and eh, this lawyer wants $4,000 to review the contract. I'm going to get my friend who's a real estate attorney to look at it. I mean, really? I mean, that's called an investment, right? So you really want to, to, to invest a little bit up front to make sure that you understand your contract. Because about 50% of people leave their first job within two or three years. But if you're signing on with a group that, that one, it's obvious that, that if you don't, continue to work with them. You can't work within hundred miles of that area. There's restricted covenant or two, the contract is structured in such a way that you're going to have to mortgage 
you know, yourself for 10 years to make partner because they're going to make you buy into assets that are poorly valued or difficult to value to make partner, then that's a problem, right? So, you know, unless you want to be an employed physician for the rest of your life, which is okay too, as long as you know that going into it. Things, uh, things like that you should know going into because basically those are the things that cause folks to leave their jobs. Not because they're not happy with their clinical work or not, they're not happy with where they live. It's mostly they're not happy about how their partners treat them or how, how, the, how the practice is structured or they're not happy about the idea that, that they're gonna, to be a partner, they have to buy into a surgery center and an office and their partners are valuing these at sky high uh, rates and you're gonna have to pay a lot of money to get in. So you should know this going in. Now, as the AOS president, can you talk about some of the objectives you've been working on this year and how that might have been affected by the virtual world? Sure, well, you know, when I look at, you know, any, any big high function organization has to have a strategic plan. You spend a lot of time working on a strategic plan identifying two or three areas that you're going to concentrate on. And what that does, it's, it's a disciplined process. And what it does, it not only identifies areas you're going to concentrate on, but identifies areas you're not going to concentrate on. And then something like COVID comes. <clears throat> so it's like Mike Tyson, you know, you, the best, every plan falls apart the minute you get punched in the nose, right? So COVID sort of hit us in the face. We had to pivot a little bit off the strategic plan and deal with the realities of COVID, making sure that that the federal government and, and, and uh, regulators uh, provided our, our practitioners with the amount of support and relief they needed so they could continue to practice after COVID. You know, each one of our, our, our practitioners employs an average of five or six folks. And those folks allow them to live paycheck to paycheck. So it was important that our providers and practices were made whole during this time when we were told by the government, by the powers that be, we couldn't work for eight weeks. But yet, you know, insurance premiums were being collected. We had to pay out salaries. So that's what really what we worked on. And, and, and one thing that, that COVID has done is it, it, there are certain trends like, like the use of telemedicine, like the use of virtual meetings, like the shift of, 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 of healthcare to ambulatory sites that have been evolving slowly before COVID. COVID was a disruptor and accelerated that evolution, kicked it into high gear. And once COVID goes away, these things are not going to go back. The genie's not going to be in the bottle. We're going to do, we're going to, we all learned how to use Zoom now. And we think, and we found out that, you know what? Zoom meetings are pretty easy. You can do work from home. So a lot of these things now, whether it's virtual meetings, virtual education, Zoom, uh, Zoom conferences, are things that are not going to go back to where they were in the pre-COVID area. So we, we all have to understand this and get used to distance learning. And the academy is, is, uh, is adopting this uh, well as well. And we think that we know that there's going to be no replacement for an in-person meeting, but we're, we're looking to reimagine how that meeting is going to look and, and look at the things that our, our members are going to need from us so they can practice in an environment that allows them to, to, to provide high quality care to our patients. You know, it wasn't a, a very linear journey, you know, and I was very, in a way, I was fortunate to be presented with opportunities, but I, I moved around a little bit. You know, I, I went to the Bronx. I'm from upstate New York. It's not the Bronx. You know, I, my first day to work, I'm driving up Gun Hill Road, yeah, in, in the Bronx, and Welcome to the Jungle came on the radio. And I'm like, this is very fitting because it was, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it was crazy, you know, but, and here I am, a kid from upstate New York, you know, from North Carolina and then Arizona and, UVM, never been in the area, but you know what? I made great friends there. 
I learned how to operate. It was, it was a great experience for me. And likewise, when I went back to North Carolina, I worked with these private practice guys, which gave me a, a whole new respect for private practitioners. And then I came up to, to work, you know, and when I came up to New York, you know, I didn't come up to NYU. I came to a hospital that was staffed by NYU physicians called Jamaica Hospital. So it was in Jamaica, Queens, not Jamaica, the island. It might as well have been. So it, it, I've been there. I still have an office there since 1998, still waiting for it to gentrify. I've got great patients there. I've got, made great friends, great contacts. It's been, a, it's been a true blessing for me. But again, this is not something that I would have managed me doing or would have imagined me doing for 20 years. But it's, it's, been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful experience. But again, tough, kind of tough to script. You can have a plan, but always be, be ready to pivot off that plan a little bit when opportunities uh, uh, arise. And again, I also think that, that you don't have, you know, some folks need everything in place before they make a step. You know, uh, Dostoevsky said, the all-knowing all person is incapable of action. So if you have to know all the pros and cons of every decision, you're probably not going to be able to make a decision. Sometimes you just got to take a leap of faith and just go for it. So that served me pretty well so far. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Interview with the Surgeon. Until next time, stay focused and keep following your dreams.